Hey everyone, Brad here, and you know we love a great find on the whiskey market. That's why we are excited to talk about Penelope Bourbon, an award-winning four-grain bourbon that is taking the market by storm. Penelope's balanced yet flavorful taste profile comes from a unique blend of three bourbon mash bills. Right now, it's available in three expressions, four-grain, barrel-strength, and toasted. Whichever expression you choose, its incredible flavor goes down smooth, neat, or in your favorite cocktail. Penelope Bourbon is available in select markets as well as online at PenelopeBourbon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2003, director Richard Linklater and star Jack Black gave the world a zany caper that asks if you are ready for rock and roll. In 2022, we return to a much maligned brand to try a different expression of rye. The film is the school of rock. The whiskey is Basil Hayden's dark rye. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G! Ooh, there it is. Yeah, man. And this week we are returning to the realm of rock. Brad, we haven't been here for a while. We did Spinal Tap. We did Almost Famous. Is this our third rock movie? Have we missed? I guess we did Jailhouse Rock just a few yeah. weeks ago. That was a bonus episode. So rock I think number three, four. Three and a, three and yeah. a half, maybe? 3.5 rocks. 3.5 rocks. But the legend of the rent <laughs> was way hardcore. Whoa, 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 Bob. You're going to get us copyright struck. Right off the Dude, I know this whole movie by heart. It's so good. It's so good. I would agree that you know this movie by heart. You're the worst. All right, let's get started. Man. I'm I'm so happy to talk about this movie. Brad, this has been a very hot topic on the Film and Whiskey podcast for a long time, in a way that I never anticipated <laughs> it being. I made a, a very benign choice to put this movie atop my uh, favorite comedies of the 2000s, and uh, I did Here's not a- expect Brad to dig his heels in on this as much as he did. Here's the wild thing, Bob. Not only did you choose it for the top of the 2000s, in your mind, you had chosen based off 2000 to 2019. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just picking from 2000 to 2009. Yeah. That you know, was the, as... the, the early season miscommunications that we had. I just meant, like, best comedies of the 21st century. And, and that's and... the wild thing, is that even with an extra nine years, you picked this movie. Yeah. All right, let's that's just crazy. let's hash this out. Let's just do... 60 seconds each on this because I, we should discuss it. It's been four seasons, I think, since we did that mm. one. But like, I don't know if we're ready, Bob. When I talked about best comedies, I think what I was thinking in my mind was like best 
best movie that is also a comedy, right? And this movie has a lot of humor in it. I laughed a lot. Is it the funniest comedy? No. Is it like, is this movie objectively the best film ever made? No. But I also think that you and I have established a long time ago, Brad, that for whatever reason, you know, we hold dramas and comedies to different standards. And Spinal Tap is a movie that we both gave a 10 out of 10 to. Do we put that on par with The Godfather? I don't know. But like for what that movie is supposed to be, I think it's a perfect movie. And that's kind of how I feel about School of Rock. There's there's one or two little things here or there. But for what this movie is supposed to do, I would put it right up there as a, a nearly perfect movie that is also a comedy. Yeah, I in my mind, a movie would have to deliver a lot more laughs for it to be a top comedy of any list, mm. let alone, you know, 19 years worth of comedies. I, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. Like like this movie is a comedy. And, you know, at, at best, you might be able to call it a dramedy. You know, there's there's a little bit of drama here, but it, it's, really. it's pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty much a comedy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to disagree with you there. The part that flabbergasts me is that you think it's so good. I just I, I can't believe that you don't think it's so good. And. And I tried to go into this watch, especially thinking like, all right, let's let's look objectively at this movie. You know, again, like it's a movie about children featuring Jack Black being his most goofy version of Jack Black. So there's got to be something here like and I went in thinking, okay, maybe it's going to be the Jack Black equivalent of Billy Madison, which is a movie that people really love to quote. And it's very dumb and juvenile, but it's just a badly made movie, too. And I think that. One of the things that elevates this is, A, Jack Black gives a a great performance, and B, you've got an Oscar-nominated director behind the camera here. And it seems kind of like an out-of-left-field choice for Richard Linklater to make this movie, but he very quietly brings some really great filmmaking craft to this movie that I I think another, you know, director for hire in the early 2000s would have really botched this. Don't tell me you guys have never gotten the lead out. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, ring any bells? What about Sabbath? ACDC, Motorhead. Oh, what are they teaching this place? Bob, I I think we're jumping really quickly into a defensive mode for you. I I know that you love this movie, but (laughs) how is anyone going to understand what we're talking about if they don't get their dose of Brad Explains? That's right. I got a fever, and the only prescription is Brad Explains. <laughs> no, you got to say it more like walking. <laughs> I was going to do like a like a New York. I almost said, oh, but that's <laughs> oh. absolutely not Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, this was not your first time seeing School of Rock, uh, but something tells me that it might be your last. So I'm excited to hear. (laughs) I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this movie. Can you explain the film in 60 seconds or less? Bob, the School of Rock is about a delinquent rager against the machine, Dewey Finn. Uh, He gets kicked out of his band because he's a jagweed and he takes a job in order to pay the rent. From his friend, uh, I think his name's Ned Flenderson, maybe? Dude, it's Ned Schneebly. Come on, man. Ned Schneebly, sorry. Oh, yeah, this cause... is Ned Schneebly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. It's so good. <laughs> so 
Uh, Ned Schneebly is his friend. He takes a job from him teaching as a substitute teacher at a really fancy school. He gets the class to buy into his vision of forming a rock band so that he can play in the battle of the bands and win it all. And then by the end of the movie, he has touched those children and those children have touched him. (laughs) That is a perfect button to put on the end of that bad boy. I like it. All right. Yeah. Good explanation, man. That was a great day. Brad explains. Thank you. That I, I felt good about it, man. All right, man. So I'll let you kind of steer us here today because I, I love the movie and I'm just excited to talk about it. And I'm not I'm not feeling defensive. I'm feeling like I want to share the love with the world here. So what would you like to go to first? Do you want to just do like things I liked, things I hated? Do you want to do performances? Lead the way. Bob, let's just start at the top. I want to talk about Jack Black, Dewey Finn. First off, have you ever noticed that he flips his hair opposite ways when he plays each character? Oh, interesting. So when he's yeah. being Ned Schneebly, he he parts it in one direction and mm-hmm. when he's and Dewey... I, oh, man, I've never noticed I, that. I noticed that this time. I was like, wait a second. Because he, like, he very <laughs> specifically like keeps his hair kind of like flipped a certain way and it's all messy and stuff but then when he's Ned Schneebly it's all perfect mm-hmm. the other way huh i had to like rewind a, it a few times a great to make visual sure visual metaphor do you get it yeah i yeah it's almost like he's a complete <laughs> and utter mess when he's Dewey Finn and he actually turns into a respectable human being mm. when he submits to the authorities and like tries to live a normal life as Ned Schneebly i also like that I gave you complete free reign over this episode, and the first thing you wanted to point out was Jack Black's hair. <laughs> yeah, like, of dude. all the things that you could have led with, you were like, well, this I, is it, I, baby. I, I'm going with <laughs> Dewey I wanted to start, hair. I wanted to start with something I liked about the movie. Oh I thought gosh. that was really well done. Okay. All right. So, let's talk Jack Black. Jack Black yeah. is certainly, like most leading comedic men of the late 90s and early 2000s, Jack Black is kind of an acquired taste, or I don't even want to call it an acquired taste. It's just like a, I like him or I don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's, and the, he's the uh, mellow corn of the movie <laughs> he world. <is> mellow corn. <laughs> but I mean, it's the same thing with Jim Carrey. Like, I feel like if you show a Jim Carrey movie to a kid today, they like the, the sheer amount of manic energy is like, it could be too much for people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've ever oh, watched yeah. The Mask since you've become an adult, but first of all problematic movie but it's just it's too <laughs> wild and i think jack black is kind of in that vein right he is very indebted to chris farley just in terms of you know large comedic energy that like that man <laughs> the way that chris farley was pulling himself robust around. Yeah. robust and i mean you know and farley is indebted to belushi but i mean i see a lot of farley in this performance but the thing that always blows my mind when i watch this is how much Chris Pratt came along, you know, 10 years later and just completely borrowed everything about Jack Black's personality, Mm. like the way he talks, the way he emphasizes words, like when he does stuff like that, like his little (laughs) uh, rock front man uh, tics are all just Dewey Finn. And like, I, I, I love it, but I hate it because if they remade this movie today, like there's no way that anyone but Chris Pratt would be the star of this movie. Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing is that they'll never remake this movie. Uh, and if they do, you can call me on the carpet for it, Bob. <laughs> I, I will gladly, I'll, I'll take that. I, I think the thing that works for Jack Black in this movie is 
you just know for a fact, like like if you know anything about Jack Black as a human being, you know that he absolutely loves rock and roll. And there used to be a way to stick it to the man. It was called rock and roll. But guess what? Oh, no. The man ruined that, too, with a little thing called MTV. So don't waste your time trying to make anything cool or pure or awesome because the man's just going to call you a fat, washed-up loser and crush your soul. So do yourselves a favor and just give up! Oh. Mr. Schneebly, it's after 10. On Tuesdays, the children have music class now. Right, okay. Uh, good work, people. We will continue with our lecture on the man when we return. Have a good music class. Like, it's it's such a key part of his persona that you can tell that this movie was made for him. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I was thinking about Top Fives the other day, and I, I don't know if we could ever do this as a bonus episode, but the idea of, like, Top Five movie performances or movie roles that were written around a specific actor... Mm-hmm. Like you know tailor-made I mean? performances. Yes, yeah. like the genie for Robin mm-hmm. Williams, mm-hmm. right? And I think that this role, Dewey Finn, would fit up there in a top two or top three as far as like a role created for mm-hmm. one actor and one actor alone. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because I like Jack Black. But I also realized that the majority of the reason that I like Jack Black is because of this movie and I like Tenacious D. So And Kung Fu Panda. I like you Kung Fu that. Panda too. But but I think that this is one of those moments where a character is so perfectly written for a specific performer that they they become inseparable, right? But it's also like every other movie that you watch that actor kind of do their shtick in never quite lives up to that. You know, like Robin Williams had a few movies that I feel like fit that mold. Mrs. Doubtfire, when you're talking live action. But there are also times where, you know, Robin Williams is doing Robin Williams and it doesn't quite work in the movie that he's in. And this this movie, you're right. It's just it falls into place around this performance. Jack Black was nominated for a Golden Globe for this movie. I'm sure that you would disagree with that, Brad, but I think it's well earned. Like. He carries the movie. He's in pretty much every scene and it doesn't work without him giving every ounce of the energy he has to it. Yeah, no, Bob, I'm actually 100% with you. This movie doesn't work without Jack Black. Uh, It doesn't work for a lot of reasons, but we'll get to those later. Jack Black is great. Uh, I will say being the, the junior varsity to the Emmys varsity, I think it makes sense that he got nominated for a Golden Globe. Yeah. Well, and yeah. as we all know now, like the Golden Globes are an unimpeachably, you know, ethical body of yeah. awards voters that we should continue to give attention to. <laughs> I feel like that's going to go over like the heads of myself and 90 percent of Film and Whiskey Nation. That's, but there's uh, like three people you... out there that are like, "Ooh, sick burn, Bob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get them. <laughs> all right, Brad, I think before we move on from Jack Black, I kind of want to go a little bit deeper on. Like our personal histories with the kind of things that this movie's about. And I, I remember at one point we were trying to think of top five uh, episodes. And I, I said like top five uh, movies about rock or top five song rock songs in movies or something. And I remember you saying like, I just I don't know a lot of classic rock. And I, it really took me by surprise because 
like I knew you grew up on the Beatles and there was a lot of music in your background, but you are not a huge listener of classic rock, if I recall correctly. Here, Bob, here's the thing. We're going we're gonna to get into it. Are, are you ready? Yeah. I don't like the 80s. Like, okay. I, I've, made it, I've made this known on the podcast before. There are, you know, parts and pieces of the 80s that I like, mm-hmm. that, that I genuinely enjoy. Um, later this season, we're going to watch one of those things being Rocky Four. But there's just, there's a lot of things I don't like about the 80s. But what I really think hits me hardest about the 80s that I dislike and man, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but you know, we have new listeners. They they can hear me out. <laughs> I just don't enjoy the rage against the machine, anti-authoritarian, deconstruct everything, stick it to the man attitude of the 80s. I, I think that there can be healthy things about that. I, you know, obviously not all authorities are good. Not, you know, a lot of them deserve to be exposed in certain ways. But there's just something about the way it's done that is so self-righteous and so, like, there is no other way to live that just gets under my skin and irks me. Mm -hmm. And so this whole movie is literally orchestrated (laughs) around that fact. And so that, that is why, for me, I just don't like School of Rock that much. I feel like if you were, like, in an 80s teen movie, you would be like the preppy villain. Yeah. That's like, you know, like, no, it's you like can't on the side of the principal. Like, you'd be like, yeah. you'd be the bad guy in Caddyshack kind of a guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I'm like the snitch that tells the principal where the kids are drinking behind. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the, exactly. the, the, the dugout. So yeah. maybe uh, your point stands. Like, I understand what you're saying. I will say just for anyone who's listening that it has any, you know, iota of an understanding of rock history. I think what you're actually referring to is music primarily from the 70s. And this movie is really rooted in 70s music. There's a ton of Bowie in this movie, uh, you know, early ACDC. So there is a little bit of 80s in this. But the 80s are really known for being like the time that rock music got really corporatized. And that's when the hair metal bands like Poison came in towards the end of the decade. So, like, I understand what you're saying. But uh, this movie might not be the best example to take your hatred of 80s culture out on. Yeah, well, I don't like the attitude, don't like the philosophy. Don't like the 80s. Uh, I don't like the 80s. <laughs> I understand. Uh, so, Also, dude, ju- let's just be honest. Forget School of Rock for a second. Everything about the 80s sucked. Like, the hair, the clothes. Like, it was just rough, man. Hmm. Ooh. I, I mean, we have a lot of listeners that were that were born in the '80s, and uh, I am gonna let your point stand on its own, and I'm gonna segue us to something else before they all tune out. I just think about uh, uh, Night at the Museum. Is it Dick Van Dyke that's yeah. like the lead security guard? He's like moving on. <laughs> so my personal history: I grew up like my parents only listened to classic rock like it was I mean it was obviously the Beatles and the Stones but it was Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the first album I ever bought as a kid was David Bowie and like this stuff is ingrained in me so there's there's a part of me that gets very like wistful and nostalgic watching this movie because another thing you have to consider in the 19 years since this movie has come out is that rock music is just dead now and people try to argue that it's not rock music is dead like the Super Bowl halftime show is a hip hop show. And it should be because that is the the predominant music of the culture now. And so I think that there's an element of this that's like I watch it and I'm like, oh, man, I, I yearn for the days of old 
But I also like there's still something in me that even if you're not a fan of rock, I think this movie so perfectly captures what it's like to share music or art or something that you love with somebody else. And like there's that montage where they're first they've bought into the band and Dewey is finally giving them like the history of rock. And there's that like tree, <laughs> like that rock tree on the chalkboard. And the kids are finally starting to figure out their roles. And there's this great like uh, dolly in on I think his name is Zach. No, not Zach. The kid that plays the drums in the movie as he's watching, you know, like the drummer from The Who going wild on his set. And it's like something's clicking in that kid. And it's the combination of sharing something you love with somebody. And also, like, I think one of the things I love most about this movie is that it's a really wholesome movie. It's a PG-13 rating, but. Like, for the most part, this is a pretty family-friendly movie. There's very little language. Uh, like, the, the worst thing anyone does in the movie is drink a beer. And it, it's a really good-hearted movie. And I think so few comedies, in especially in the early 2000s, had a good heart behind them. It wasn't mean-spirited. And at the end of the day, it was about, like, a bunch of kids finding their passion. It's just, it's, Brad, I'm so mad you don't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for you to get to that point. <laughs> the more the I talk thing, about it, the more I'm like, I, lo I love this movie. It's like everything I love about movies in a movie. Here's the thing, man. I I don't like hate this movie. I, I think I've just always been taken aback by how much you love this movie. You know, I like in general, this this has like a pretty good reputation online. I think it has a little bit of a cult following, mm -hmm. be, you know, because it's such a unique film. But in the end, Bob, this has a 7.1 on IMDb. And yeah. If I'm being honest, I, I think that's fair. Like, like it's a solid movie. I I would call it like an average to above average. There's a lot of parts of it that just don't work great. Uh, a lot of the, the child actors are, are not very engaging or interesting. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that not at all. Joan, Joan Cusack is like just fine. Hmm. Uh, and Jack, Jack Black carries the entire movie. Uh, that's not true. The dude who plays Ned Schneebly, who I think is a writer for the movie. Yeah, his name is Mike White. He's written a number of movies, and he wrote this movie. So yeah, he yeah. he kills it, man. Ned Ned Schneebly is <laughs> like he he reminds me of uh, Toby from The Office. Like he he was Toby before Toby was Toby. before Toby he, was a thing. Yeah, yeah. So like I I really liked him a lot. Yeah, he's but good. dude, th this movie is just Jack Black, like hip thrusting it into above averageness hmm. and uh you know like that's fine it's good i just i think the the reason i was so vehement against it was just i just couldn't believe <laughs> that you considered this the best comedy of the do 2000s you know what it is? like do you know what it is for me is like i hear people talk about singing in the rain as a movie that is in their like in the 10 best films ever made and like really reputable, you know, film critics and and directors. And the thing they always come back to is like it is impossible to watch Singing in the Rain without feeling a sense of joy. The 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 sheer joy delivery in that movie is like mm. unparalleled. Mm. And I'm I'm pretty much there. I love Singing in the Rain. I do think that ballet sequence at the, at the end is a little too long. And like that's that's fine. But this movie is is kind of in that same conversation for me in terms of like it is so charming and so winning and it's like it's impossible to root against a movie that has a heart this big. And I, I kind of think that's where I like whatever other flaws the movie might have, 
Like at the end of the day, this is a movie, you know, it's about Jack Black on the surface and, and his kind of really tiny character arc. But it's it's about like it's about kids finding out that they are like special and that they are like they have abilities and talents that people don't recognize. And, you know, like my wife was uh, was a, an early childhood educator. And, you know, we you know, we've both worked with kids at our church and you can always tell like when people are or when kids are in relationships with their parents where they're just kind of their talents are being suppressed. And there's that one little moment in this movie where, you know, Zach's dad is kind of berating him in front of Jack Black about no more rock music. And, you know, it's obvious and it's on the nose. I, I just I think that a movie that really takes seriously kids and their development and the fact that like people can pour into children and really make a difference that really speaks to me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you, dude. I just think that the the mechanics of how it's done is just it, it's ridiculous to the point of like I I just don't buy in. Sure, you know, like well, the let's idea talk about that a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, no, just like the idea that these kids would be so I don't know that they they would have their parents' thumb on them so tightly that they don't really get to experience music, that they don't get to experience any joy. Like, I, I know that that's out there. I know that there are parents out there who stifle any sense of creativity out of their children. But I, I don't think that it takes Jack Black being a terrible human being and hijacking their entire mm-hmm. education in order to accomplish such a thing. You know, like, I, honestly, I wish that there was a sense of growth in Dewey's part of recognizing the flaws in his philosophy and ideology. Yeah. Well, you know, and he, I- they they hint at it, but you're right. They never really go there. It's like he he wins in the end, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and in all reality, like he should not. He should be fined, and uh, I have a restraining order, yeah. probably in jail. <laughs> like like there there's a reality where, and I think maybe that's the problem is that Dewey never seems to accept a sense of responsibility of like mm-hmm. you know what like I really did screw up. No, in the end, he has this you know post credits. Uh, scene where he's just teaching school and he's found his calling as a teacher and the it becomes weirdly self-aware at the end and like i it just doesn't i don't know i think i think they could have gone a lot deeper there there's definitely a level of buy-in here and i think that now this is one of those areas where if you're a fan of the movie then you kind of just point to the fact that it's a comedy to paper over how much you have to suspend disbelief at some points. But, but Robert, you told me that this is just a good movie. No, but listen. And that we shouldn't, we shouldn't I'm judge I'm trying to give you credit if you would just stop being <laughs> selfish for a minute. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> so what I'm saying is I think if you're not a fan of this movie, then you can point to, like, there's some huge leaps in logic that people make here. And I think that for me as a fan of the movie, I would kind of point to the fact that this is a comedy and people like a lot of the characters in this movie are not real people and they are very obviously caricatures and they behave in the way that people in comedies do. But well, no, go ahead. Go ahead. And I was going to say, I think one of the other big issues I have with the movie is the way they portray the children. Like, like obviously the Asian kid is going to be the piano player and Obviously, the the girl is going to be the band manager, and she's the uptight, you know, you know, can't can't mm. sing, but she still has to be in control, and you have to placate her. I mean, she's like a Karen before there's Karens, right? 
Uh, and you know, obviously, we have to have a young gay boy in the group, and and obviously, the, what what's the young gay boy going to do? He's obviously going to design the clothes, and they're going to be fabulous. And yeah, I, I think that was probably my biggest issue with this movie is the way the movie just falls into very, I would say, stereotypical tropes that you just didn't need to. Like, let the kids be kids. Yeah, I get that. Will other schools be competing? You could say that. You could say that every school in the state will be competing for the top prize. What's the prize? A win will go on your permanent record. Hello, Harvard, yo. The thing is, we're not supposed to get started until next quarter, but I think we should get a leg up on the competition, don't you? I do. Who else wants to go for the gold? I do. I do. All right. But if anyone finds out what we're doing in here, we'll be disqualified. So let's just keep it on the down low, shall we? Can we tell our parents? No! Just trust me, they don't want to know anything about this. Keep it zipped. I think that where I was going to go with my point was, on this watch through, I really kept in mind the fact that, you know, in the last few years, this movie has been adapted into a Broadway play and was up for a bunch of Tonys and is apparently very successful. And I think that, I'm not the first person to make this observation, but this is a modern, a modernized telling of The Music Man. I don't know if you've ever seen The Music Man. Brad was one of my favorite musicals growing up. And yeah, I think dude. what this movie does really well, I mean, it it tells the exact same story of a guy that's conning a bunch of children and then learns to, you know, grow through it and stays instead of, you know, skipping town kind of a thing. But it really captures the, like, crowd-pleasing, send you out with a smile on your face, we're probably going to dance around some logic because we want to deliver a really good grand finale of musicals. And I grew up really, really loving musicals. And so I think that's another reason that this appeals to me is because it has that sort of ridiculousness of like a Gene Kelly movie where at the end of the movie, it's like, how the hell did that happen? Like they're in love again. And you're like, yeah, they're in love again. Look how happy they are. I don't care <laughs> when they play that song at the end of this movie. I am like giddy. It is it is so cool to see those kids in their element and owning their talents and like their parents finally coming around to it. Not to mention the fact that song straight banger, dude, that song is so good. It's like <laughs> we were just talking about that thing you do the song a couple weeks ago. This is up there for me. They could play this song like 12 more times in this movie and I still would not get sick of it. Dude, I I will say this. I love how much you love this movie. <laughs> and I really want to try this Basil Hayden Dark Ride. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I need well, whiskey in my belly. Give me 30 seconds before we go to break and and respond to my Music Man thing. So I, you've seen the Music Man. Do you, I mean, where, where yeah. do you stand on musicals in general? And do you see how this fits into that sort of storytelling pattern? Yeah, no, I, I honestly li really like musicals. I I don't know if I would say I'm enough of a fan to be like, I have to see musicals when they come out, but I like them. I think they're entertaining and fun and they change up your movie going experience. I think that's what I like about musicals the most. For me, the school of rock, it comes close to like wanting to be a musical, but it doesn't like fully fit the bill. So mm -hmm. I guess I hadn't really thought of it before as a musical, I think that there is that sense of suspension of disbelief and yeah. you have to suspend a lot 
and and that's okay. I'm I'm glad you can do that, Bob. Man, you the passive aggressiveness is strong with you today, man. We need, we need to drink some whiskey. I'm I'm getting it out right now. Let's try this Basil Hayden's. Let's get aggressive, aggressive. All right. So today we are checking out Basil Hayden's Dark Rye. Now, before we even give any specs or info about this bottle, Brad, let's throw it back to season one. And what, like episode three or four of this podcast, we were complete novices. We knew next to nothing about whiskey, except for that we'd had a couple. We knew what made whiskey and we knew what we liked and what we didn't like. We knew nothing about whiskey, except that we had had a couple. (laughs) It's true. That is so good, dude, because it's so true. It's really true. So, like, I I have not gone back and listened to our review, but I think it's telling that even in that early stage, we were like, what the hell is this? We tried Basil Hayden's, which is produced by the Jim Beam Corporation, you know, Beam Suntory. It is uh, part of a line that they have. It's Basil Hayden's, Booker's, Baker's, and Knob Creek. It's kind of like their mid-shelf uh, you know, fancy pants whiskeys. And this one is bottled at 80 proof. And so even then we were like, well, this seems a little watery. And also it's yeah. $40. And, it, you know, it seemed like the Beam had been trying to get their foot in gateway kind of whiskeys in a way that's like a, a bottle you could gift to somebody. But it's always kind of stuck in our craw that it is 80 proof and $40 and not very good. And so we have not tried anything remotely related to Basil <laughs> Hayden's in the four seasons since. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the honest truth. Back then, for us, 25 to $35, even tw- $25 to $30 was like our high end of like, this is becoming expensive. Mm-hmm. I would say now... I don't know about you, Bob. I would say now like $50 is probably my high end of like, eh, this is starting to get a little expensive. Right, would you say that's where you are? Yeah, 50 is kind of like, I'm not going to, it won't be a daily drinker anymore if it's over $50. Yeah. yeah. And so back then, $40 felt like a lot. It was like $10, $12 above what we wanted to spend. And to get something that was 80 proof just felt wild. Mm-hmm. And now I, I would say we're above average experienced whiskey drinkers. At the very least, we've had a, a broad width of, of whiskey on our palates. And I would still say, you know, this this whiskey, I'll, I'll you know, talk about value here a tiny bit. It's $42.99 in the state of Ohio. Bob, that's 80 proof for $43. Do you know what you can get for $42.99 in the state of Ohio? Oh, I know exactly what you're going to say. You can wild get wild turkey, turkey rare breed. Yeah. <laughs> rare breed. <laughs> and so in my mind, I'm already just going to tell you, go buy wild turkey rare breed for $43. <laughs> That's it. That's the end of the review. All right, dude. Let's get back to uh, School of Rock. Oh, man. All right. So listen, man, what a disappointing episode for you. Am I right? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Dude, so this I'm, have, whiskey, I'm having a blast, man. Let's, this let's whiskey keep going. is categorized as a whiskey specialty or a distilled spirit specialty because it's not technically a rye. It's not technically a bourbon. So, you know, we've had a lot of finished bourbons on this show, Brad, like a bourbon that is then finished in a barrel that was used to hold something else. And by the strict laws of, you know, bourbondom, it's not really considered <laughs> bourbon anymore. It's called a whiskey specialty. That's why the, the label... 
makes you know takes great effort to say bourbon finished in whatever because it's not I'm just bourbon anymore. I'm just curious. What are the citizens of bourbondom known as? Are they bourbonites? <laughs> are they bourbonanians? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, that's that's it. <laughs> so this one is made up of. Kentucky straight rye whiskey, which is then blended with Canadian rye whiskey and port. So important to note, it's it's blended with other whiskeys, specifically Canadian rye, and it's also blended with port. So it's not finished in a port barrel. They just take a bunch of port and dump it in. It's, and it's s- not a bunch of Bob. It's a touch. It's a touch. It's a touch. <laughs> So, you know, I think it's important to make that distinction that, like, they just went ahead and just stirred the stuff right in here. And uh, I think it's really, really apparent, Brad. We're going to get into our tasting notes here. What are you picking up on the nose of dark rye? You know, it it is really grainy. uh, And it's not even necessarily rye that I'm picking up, which is a little bit worrisome. It just kind of has a generic young graininess. Mm-hmm. And then I get like a little bit of plum, a little bit of strawberry. It, it's got some nice berry notes going on here. I'll give it a six out of 10 on the nose. Yeah, this definitely had strawberry, which is a note we never get really on whiskey. Once in a blue moon. But this really had the the smell of that strawberry glaze. I don't know if you've ever seen that stuff. They sell it in like bags at the grocery store. Yeah, It's yep. a real sweet kind of artificial strawberry scent going on here. There's a little bit of dark cherry. And then you're right. It's it's really young smelling, really grain forward. Again, you are absolutely correct. It's not necessarily like a a young rye grain. It just kind of smells like uh, something got hacked down in the field <laughs> covered in strawberry glaze. Mm. And I, I'm making it sound worse than it is. I'm, I'm also going to give it a six out of 10. It's not bad, but I, uh, I'm not looking forward to this, Brad. Yeah. You get into the taste and like, I, I hate to say it, but adding the port straight in, it, it doesn't taste quite like whiskey, Bob. No, no. Like it's, it's, it's got a little sweet. bit of, of like a prune juice, yep. cherry juice feel to it. Yep. Uh, now, now it, let me let me just interject here because I'm always going to be one to take credit where credit's due. Brad and I drank this whiskey together, and we're giving our notes now. Brad, I'm the one that said prune juice. I need I need you to give me my prune juice note back. You got it, man. I I I redact it from the can can the re- strike the it from the record. Strike it from the record. Prune juice is Bob's thing now. Yeah, it's it's got the Willet Funk and the Basil Hayden prune juice <laughs> and the pruny juice, the pruny juice. Bob, I'll I'll just finish my score. I'll give it a five out of ten. It, yeah. It's genuinely not like bad, but in no way, shape, or form is it good. Is that fair? <laughs> that that's might be the meanest thing I've ever heard anyone say. That's like that's the kind of thing that if someone said it about you, that would keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Yeah, I am not a fan of this, Brad. Uh, I'm with you. Like prune juice is there. I think there's like it it goes in layers. It's like prune juice followed by really cheap red wine. So there's your your port influence with the prune and the red wine. And then uh, on the back of the taste going into the finish, it's like straight Robitussin. It Mm. really takes on a cough syrupy character to me. I'm going to give it a five out of ten on the flavor. The finish is a is a little bit better. It's it's kind of tannic again from that port influence. It's definitely not thin. Like the mouthfeel on this was not as as thin and watery as I expected it to be, which was nice. Um I'll give it a 6 on the finish. So a 5 and a 6 for me. 
Yeah, I'll, like I said, five on taste, four on finish for me. The the Robitussin cherry cough syrup flavor just was too much for me to handle. Not a big fan, man. It just tastes fake. So this is where we always struggle because the next category is balance. And that's where we think about the nose taste and finish kind of taken as a cohesive whole. Brad, I didn't think this had like a ton of peaks and valleys through the experience. It was pretty consistent throughout, but it was consistently not that great. So I'm like, I don't know how to score this. I actually think I'm going to give it a little bit of leniency here. I'll give it a seven on balance because it wasn't poorly done. I just don't really like what they did. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'll give it a six and a half. And the thing that really kept me interested is that this had a really solid mouthfeel. Like like the viscosity was right on. There was, it really coated your mouth nicely. Now, I, I wasn't a massive fan of the flavors it coated you with, but at the very least, they made a interesting whiskey. I'll give it a six and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, the value, we already talked about it a tiny bit. $42.99 in the state of Ohio. I, I don't know. Three and a half, I guess. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four. Uh, Brad, you know, you and I were kind of trying to figure out what this compares to uh, because there was a certain note that that prune juicy note. We couldn't quite place it. And I think what it reminds me of is we had a company on the show, I think last season called Broken Barrel that does kind of uh, barrel finishes, but they do it by breaking apart the barrel and submerging it into the tank full of whiskey. And they had a finished whiskey that that had a little bit of this character to it from the port. But we also tried that one, I think, at barrel strength. And I think that mm-hmm. really improved. Like, you can have that sort of dark cherry, pruny, pitted fruit flavor going on here. And I think also the fact that they weren't just dumping port into it, as far as we know, really <laughs> kind of improved that as well. Bob, Bob, it's a touch of port. That, that's touch. what it says. A touch there, of port. Yeah, a touch of I port. I guess what I'm saying here is, like, there are other finished whiskeys out there that uh, are in a similar flavor profile and a similar price point. Because remember, Broken Barrel's stuff was, I think their baseline stuff was like 35 bucks. So the finished one is probably you know, maybe 50, but it's barrel proof. So when and, I and when from I, a craft distillery and from a yeah, from a craft producer. So I would 100% recommend Broken Barrel stuff over this. And I understand what Beam is trying to do with like marketing this as a high end entry level uh, whiskey. But it just, it's not that good, dude. Nope. No, my my total is coming out to a 25 out of 50. Bob, where are you at? I'm at a 28. So that brings us to a 26.5 on average or a 53 out of 100. I'm not going to recommend trying. I'm not going to recommend buying. You can absolutely skip this one altogether. Go kick rocks, Basil Hayden. (laughs) Get out of here. Basil Hayden. Get out of town. Basil Hayden's, you're the man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Bob, how about we get back into talking about the school of rock? Let's do it, Brad. All right, everybody. That was Basil Hayden's Dark Rye, a whiskey that Bob and I were unimpressed with, to put it it simply. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) But here we are talking about school of rock. And Bob, I will say there is one person we haven't talked about yet, and that's Joan Cusack, probably the only other person who really plays a major role in this movie. I mean, you have Sarah Silverman. She She's kind of a, a tertiary character. Mm-hmm. We we mentioned uh, Mike White, you said, plays yep. Ned Schneebly. But Joan Cusack is the only other real act, 
actor in this movie. So I'm curious, how'd you feel about, about my girl Joan? I thought she was good. Again, I think everyone in this movie besides Jack Black, and sometimes including Jack Black, is not really a fully formed person or character. You know, they're just, they're a little too much a caricature. And that goes for her too. She's she's wound so tight. And even though they kind of flesh it out in the script why she's wound so tight and that she's aware and she hates it, like, it, she still behaves in a way that normal people don't behave. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's hard to judge the performance if you're if you're judging it as if, like, would she get nominated for an Oscar for this? Like, no. But for but what maybe, the movie... But maybe a Globe and Globe. May, maybe, maybe a, a Golden Globe. Globe. That's true. Yeah. But for what the movie requires, I thought she was really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're kind of pushing to where I'm at with her in this movie. She's just so unbelievably unbelievable in this movie. <laughs> and and I don't know if that's her fault. I think she does a really good job of being charming in this movie. I think probably one of my favorite parts of the movie is when she walks back into the room with all the parents yelling at her and just announces, like, your children have disappeared. They are gone. We don't know where they are. Like, like that, that for me was actually probably one of the funniest moments of the mm-hmm. movie that just, I laughed out loud. That, that was just really funny. But outside of that, I, I thought she was fine. But once again, I, I feel like the script was just a little bit underdeveloped. It was undercooked. Mm. And I, I think, I, I don't know, Bob, if I'm allowed to transition to my big flaws with this movie, it, it really, for me, comes down to the script. Like, it kind of feels like a really extended SNL sketch that they were like, hey, Jack, where do you want to take this? Where do you want to go with it? You tell people what to do. You give them their lines and they'll play off of you. And what what the end result is, you get a lot of kids who are very uh, shy and cautious with their performances because Jack Black is overwhelming them with his personality. You get other actors and actresses who aren't really meaningful to the story who are i mean you put it best they're caricatures sarah silverman is a caricature she's the angry girlfriend and uh mike white is the weasley boyfriend and joan cusack is the overworked principal and they never really come out of those roles and so for me i i think the script is just a little bit underbaked and it it just relies so heavily on the charm of Jack Black that it never really goes anywhere for me. And, yeah. and don't get me wrong, man. Like I think Jack Black is hilarious. If you've one of my favorite things I've ever seen was a, a YouTube short, and it was a video of Jack Black playing a fake saxophone on like one of the late night shows, and the caption was Jack Black is what you get if you dump all of your other characteristics and just boost charisma to the max. Mm. Like the dude is the most charismatic human being ever to live. Mm -hmm. And I think that this movie flows purely on his charisma and there's just not enough else going on for me to really love this movie. So here are my thoughts on the movie before we get into final scores. I think last week at the end of the episode, I mentioned that I think that structurally, this is a nearly perfect movie. And again, I don't know how much credit I can give to Mike White there. He's a good screenwriter. But you're right, man. This is like a good enough script 
And it doesn't really need to be anything better than that because it's following the beats of the music, man. It's following the beats of classic Broadway musicals. And so, of course, the script is going to be good enough. But one of the things that I think really elevate this movie above what it could have been is the addition of Richard Linklater as director. We didn't really get a chance to talk about him, but... You know, he's an Oscar nominated director. He was uh, a huge figure in the early 1990s American independent cinema and got really famous with, you know, the, the before movies and with Dazed and Confused. And around this time is when he started making a movie that would come to be nominated for Best Picture called Boyhood. And I think he'd been filming Boyhood for like two years when this movie came out. And so, like, you know, there's a part of me that knows he he probably took this movie for a paycheck and to keep doing something while he was waiting to film the next year's worth of stuff for Boyhood. But Linklater is really known for being a super laid back director in terms of the kind of movies he makes. He, he makes hangout movies and he really brings that energy here. There's not a lot of quick cutting in this movie. And in fact, a lot of the kind of performances that Jack Black gives in the classroom or teachable moments that that he's doing in the classroom if you'll notice like they'll just put a camera on him and the only thing it'll do is kind of like pull back really slowly and there are some really really long unbroken takes in this movie and it's the kind of thing you don't really notice until you start thinking about like how else could this movie have been made because brad i'm gonna try to trip your memory here there were a number of movies that came out like in the early to mid 2000s that dealt with themes like this, like kids and goofy old adults. So there was this movie with Rain Wilson from The Office called The Rocker. Have you, do you remember that movie at all? Never heard of it. No, because it sucked, right? And like, if you go back and watch early 2000s comedies, they all have these horrific looking cinematography, like they're really brightly lit. They look like they're made for TV. And you get movies like this, The Rocker. Um, well, What was the other one I was just looking at? Owen Wilson was in a movie called Drill Bit Taylor. Do you remember that movie? Never heard yeah, of it. Yeah, Owen Wilson and some kids, man. You've got the uh, <laughs> the the Sean William Scott, Paul Rudd movie, Role Models, which is a little bit better made, but it's super raunchy. Like, I don't think any movie was really doing what this one did in terms of having a really kind of wholesome heart behind it and some really, really competent people working on it. And I think that's what elevates it for me. I know that... It doesn't quite click on that level for you, Brad, but man, I just, I really think it, it works pretty perfectly. Well, Bob, I, I don't know if we can get much further than this. I think you and I are, we're pretty well, you know, cemented into where we, we feel about this movie. I want to get into final scores, but I realized something, Bob. Do you know what I realized? There, I don't know. There's so many things you could say right now. <laughs> I forgot to do two facts and a falsehood. Oh, two facts and a falsehood, our new segment that we forgot about by week two. <laughs> Already, man, we're off to a strong start. Oh, man. Bob, this week's two facts and a falsehood is crime related. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I, I think I might know one of them. This might help weirdly, me out. Yeah, it, it might. You, you might have a 50-50 shot here. Weirdly enough, there's a lot of criminally related facts to uh, the School of Rock, which might say all it needs to say about what Jack Black was doing in this movie. Bob, are you ready for the two facts and a falsehood? Oh, you know it, man. Fact. Joey Gatos, who plays Zach, was charged in 2019 with a theft of guitars in the wonderful state of Florida. Mm, Florida Fact man. number two. <laughs> Florida man Zach. Fact number two. Joan Cusack, as a young teenager, was caught smoking weed by her parents. 
and she got sent to the Horace Mann Preparatory School in New York, where she fell in love with acting. Fact number three, a convicted murderer was an extra in this movie, and he pushed past Joan Cusack in one of the scenes. Hmm. I know A is true. That was the one I knew, because I remember reading that story. Isn't that wild, dude? He yeah. was out there stealing guitars, man. Good for him, man. Live your <laughs> life, dude. Him. Go on, Florida man. Stick it to the man. <laughs> Stick it to the man. He took the lesson seriously. He did. Uh, the Joan Cusack thing, I don't, I don't know about. I mean, she, you know, she's been an actress forever. Her and her brother, John Cusack. Um, what? Mm, but the Horace Mann School isn't that the name of the school in this movie? Wait a minute. Hmm. Is it? I don't remember. Uh, all right, screw it. I'm going to say C is also true so b is false b was joan cusack young teenager caught smoking that is the falsehood bob yes. you are correct uh, i've redeemed yeah. myself from last week bro i was looking through the uh, trivia for this movie and it was like a convicted murderer was an extra in the movie <laughs> and it, it like gave his name and stuff and i looked it up and yeah there dude he was. he was he was a murderer and he was an extra in this movie hey man gotta get famous by any means necessary right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it's wild, man. So there you go. That is our criminally based two, two facts, facts and a falsehood. Wow. Bob, right, as we get into final scores, this this is your jam. I, I don't think any score I can give will will detract from your love of this movie. So what what's your final score for The School of Rock? It's not a perfect movie, but it's a nearly perfect movie. I love it to death. And it's one of those movies that I love to death and also like get confused by people not seeing it the way I do. So like it's in ET territory for me. So so you're you're blind is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you know, we've done a couple movies where it's like, all right, I love it, but like this is severely flawed. I don't yeah. see this movie that way. So here you go. Make fun of me all you will. School of Rock is a 9.5 out of 10. I knew you were going to If you had given it a 9, I think I wouldn't have given you any crap. But like <laughs> 9.5, Bob, that's like really high territory that is what you gave the aviator sure but you're not comparing the two like does this movie accomplish what it needed to accomplish and and then also transcend that yes it's a 9.5 yeah see i would say this movie set out what it meant to accomplish which was give jack black a place to be charismatic and it did that don't 9. think 5. it exceeded it though i'll give it a Man, I said it before. I think IMDb is right. I, I think a seven out of ten is wow. is appropriate for this movie. Mm. I, I don't hate it. I, like I think it's charming and fun, but it, it just doesn't you know blow me out of my seat or anything. Well, that is bringing our average out to an eight point two five out of ten. But we'd like to know what you think, because Brad, this we're pretty divided on this. We're talking like twenty five percentage points out of a hundred. Yeah. Here. Yeah, that's, really, that's pretty big for us. I really want to know what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks. Please, like, we say this every week, but I'm serious. Get on social media and tell us who you agree with more about this movie. Because I, I feel like people are really going to fall towards either pole here. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump on our Discord. We have conversations every single day with Film and Whiskey Nation. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single of our show notes, and finally, guys, if you really support what we're doing here, if you love the show, send us a few bucks. Go jump on Patreon. 
it all all of the money goes to support the podcast to pay for new equipment to to get really cool whiskeys on the show so if you want to if the goodness of your heart leads you to it go for it all right brad it's time to spin the wheel of fate to determine your next movie spin that wheel oh bradley we're, yeah, <laughs> we're going back to your favorite decade <laughs> with maybe the most. Yeah, dude, the most '80s movie ever made, Rocky Four. <laughs> Rocky Four. I love that we haven't even discussed Rockies one through three on this podcast. Nope. Nor do you need we, to. Like, you could go into this movie completely cold, and it makes just as much sense. Honestly, Bob, I think it might be better. If you went into it completely without cold. the context of, of yeah. Rockies one through three, like I, we'll we'll get into it, but I I actually think it might be better to go into it cold. But Bob, I'm I am just overwhelmingly excited. I did not pick this movie expecting it to be anything good. It's just one of those movies that gets you jacked up, and I can't wait to talk about it. But until then, who are you, Bob? <laughs> until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Just, that's, just that's kidding. That's the post credits moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs>